News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Is Canada now in the fourth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic? We've watched as other countries, particularly south of us, grapple with rapidly rising caseloads. And here the focus seems to have been on, you know, continued vaccination, relatively low numbers. But could that be starting to change? In BC, we are seeing those numbers creep back up. We have this outbreak in the Okanagan that has resulted in regional restrictions for the first time. And the majority of these cases are now the result of the Delta variant. So where are we at? Well, joining us now for more on this is Dr. Isaac Bagosh, infectious disease clinician and scientist at the University of Toronto. Dr. Bagosh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hey, my pleasure. So when you look at where, you know, BC in particular, or even Canada is at at this point, is this the fourth wave? Uh, it's probably the start of one. It's probably the start of one. Like, listen, we, we can't. We can't get surprised when we see cases go up, right? We know that we've done extraordinarily well with the vaccine rollout uh, in Canada and, of course, in BC. Canadians have rolled up their sleeves. They've all got vaccinated or most have. But when we look at the number of people, not the relative number of people, but the absolute number of people that are unvaccinated, it's measured in the millions. And these are people who are, are you know, under 12 and not eligible. They're people who may have lingering questions. There may be people who have barriers to vaccines still, technology or mobility or what other barriers they might have, but there's still millions of people who are unvaccinated. So when you start to lift restrictions, which is happening in various paces across the country, you can't get surprised if you see a rise in cases when you have millions of unvaccinated people and opportunities for the virus to transmit. It's just really contagious. We're going to get cases. Right. You make a good point, though, about like looking at the numbers. We, we just look at the percentage. Right. And we forget about exactly how many people we're talking about here who still aren't vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a time and place to look at the percentage and, and, and proportion. And there's a time and place to look at the absolute numbers and put all the data into the appropriate context. There are still millions, like truly millions of Canadians that uh, don't have protection against COVID-19. And, uh, and, and again, like, obviously, I think at this point in time, you know, it's not 100% true, but most people who want the vaccine have had at least the first dose of the vaccine. Like, access is becoming less and less of an issue. It's, of course, not perfect, but it's less and less of an issue now to the point where we're talking about having vaccine doses expire in, in some jurisdictions, which is unacceptable as well. But... Um, but yeah, I mean, we will see a rise in cases. Also, just look anywhere else in the world, like everywhere else in the world. Whenever you start to lift restrictions, you see, you see a rise in cases. I think the big question here is, to what extent is that going to impact Canadian society, right? Mm-hmm. Are we going to start to see pressures on the healthcare system? Uh, you know, can we create safer indoor spaces so that we can lift restrictions, protect vulnerable populations, protect people going back to work or going back to school and not have a negative impact on, you know, you know, our, 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 our daily function, our hospital system, our business, our economy. And, you know, I think this is a, a situation where we're going to find out right. one way or another. You know, it's interesting to me that, you know, we've talked a lot about like a vaccine mandate in Canada and governments seem reluctant to do that. But in the United States, Dr. Burgos, what we've seen are big companies that are saying, if you're going to work for us, you must be vaccinated. Do you think businesses are going to take this into their own hands now because they say, listen, we need certainty? Yes, 
I do. And that's exactly what we're going to happen. If you don't have it at the federal level, you'll see it at the provincial level. If you don't see it at the provincial level, you might see it at um, uh, more of a, a regional level. And that regional level will likely be different businesses or different organizations. I think the lowest hanging fruit is healthcare. Any hospital or healthcare system should ensure that everyone working for them is vaccinated, especially those who are patient-facing. That doesn't just mean doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, speech-language pathologists, et cetera, et cetera. That means anyone who comes into the building. You know, If you're a hairdresser who works with uh, patients in the long-term care facility, you've got to be vaccinated, right? Like, that is just... <laughs> I mean, that just makes sense, right? We, we know that you can still get infected. We know that vulnerable populations who visit healthcare might not mount the same degree of an immune response to two doses of a COVID-19 vaccine. They're still vulnerable. You can still have outbreaks. Um, the vaccines are extremely helpful in reducing that risk, but they don't eliminate that risk. Uh, you got to vaccinate everyone in healthcare. That's That's an easy one. Right. So you think like that's going to get done. But I I read that, you know, Walmart is requiring all employees in the U.S. to do this. So these huge companies are saying, yeah, you can't work for us. So will that make it will that change things, do you think, for that final 20 percent here in Canada that seems still seem a little bit hesitant? It will. It certainly will. It won't make it perfect. But listen, if you're if you have I think it's fair to acknowledge that there are going to be there, there's a percentage of people, and I can't tell you with a straight face what that percentage is, but there is a percentage of people that will not get the vaccine no matter what. Even if they're threatened with getting fired, even if they have other negative repercussions, there's just some people that aren't going to get vaccinated, full stop. But I think there's a lot of, of that 20%-ish that is eligible and not yet vaccinated. There's probably a lot of people that are, you know, on the fence, need a little motivation, have some questions that need to be addressed. And I think by... Um, taking their questions seriously by answering in a fact-based, non-shame and blame approach. I think we can get a lot of them vaccinated. And then, of course, if you have a company or your employer that says your body, your choice, but also, you know, if you want to work here, you got to be vaccinated. We won't force you to get vaccinated, but you just, you just not, you can't come into this workplace and potentially expose people. Uh, with COVID-19. You just can't work here. I think that'll push a lot of people to get vaccinated as well. Right. And accessibility, you mentioned that, and that's less and less of an issue, right? I know here in BC, uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact, is a get the vaccine anywhere drop-in day where anybody can walk in and get it at any place where they distribute the vaccine without an appointment. I love this. Like this is it's just like little things like this can go so far. Um, I'm going to brag about Toronto for a second, and I know everyone in Vancouver likes to <laughs> snub their nose at Toronto, <laughs> myself included, because I'm from Calgary originally. I grew up snubbing my nose at Toronto. But, you know, Toronto, where I'm calling you from, uh, has a really good program. They're calling it the home stretch approach. And, like, this is where you're actually bringing the vaccines to people's homes. You're bringing them to places of work. You are lowering every possible barrier to vaccination. Is it perfect? No. Is it really, really good? And, and you're getting those numbers higher and higher? Absolutely. And, and the more barriers that we can identify and overcome, the better. And we have to think about what they are, right? There's, there's, like some people have mobility barriers and are homebound. Like, you got to go knock on those doors. Some people have language barriers and still can't, 
you know, you won't be able to navigate the system. Even you might not have the same social support network that others have. You got to go find them at their home or at their work. Some people have technology barriers and won't be able to sign up online or use the phone system. You got to go find them. And uh, obviously it takes a lot more effort, but it's worthwhile. You really will. You really can reallocate many of those resources that you used to vaccinate the gazillions of people in B.C., to honing in on that 20 percent uh, that remain unvaccinated. And I think that's a smart approach. And will that make the difference then? Like we Canada seems we're pretty proud of ourselves right now for the fact that we've taken the lead in the number of people vaccinated. But that doesn't mean we're out of the woods, right? That's exactly it. I think it's OK to say, look at us. We're amazing because look at us. We are amazing. <laughs> but, but on the <laughs> other hand, the job ain't done, right? You got millions of eligible people that are unvaccinated. So the job isn't over. But, you know, we, you, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can pause, look around, pat yourself on the back, but also recognize that there's still more to do. <laughs> oh, I love it with the way you put that. Okay, thank you so much for your time this morning. Have a great day. I appreciate that. Dr. Isaac Pagosh is an infectious disease clinician and scientist at the University of Toronto. Uh, we are not going to escape the impact of a potential fourth wave. We have work to do, he said. I love the way he put it. We can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? We can fight this. We can uh, get people vaccinated and we can still be proud of the fact that we are doing well in our vaccinations. But we should still acknowledge there is work to do. This is Mornings with Simi. I think for a lot of people, this is like the summer of the road trip around BC. But what if you have an electric vehicle? You have to do a lot of planning to make that happen. My question to you this morning is like, do you want to get an electric vehicle? What holds you back? And if you have one, how do you plan for those road trips? David wrote me to say, I travel from Vancouver to Williams Lake every couple of weeks in my EV. As long as I travel Highway 1 to Cash Creek and then Highway 97 from Cash Creek to Williams Lake, there's lots of charging stations, he said. But when the highway was closed, I just didn't go to Williams Lake because between Kamloops and 100 Mile House, there are zero charging stations in more than 200 kilometers. That, David, kind of sums up why we're talking about this today, because there's been a lot of discussion on social media about this over the weekend. Do we have enough infrastructure here in BC for more and more people to drive electric vehicles and take those road trips, right? Do those longer distances. Well, joining us now is Andrew Weaver, former BC Green Party leader, climate scientist, and a professor in the School Earth and Ocean Sciences at UVic. Good morning. Thank you for being with us. Oh, good morning, Simi, and thanks for having me on. Well, this is such a fascinating topic, because this is something that has always concerned me, too, and you've been talking about this for years, haven't you? Uh, well, yeah, and I, I don't own a gas-powered car. We have two EVs, and, um, uh, yeah, so this was one of the things I spent an awful lot of time in the legislature doing, and actually uh, there were some barriers that we've been, have been removed, and now you're starting to see them roll out. So are you saying it's getting, do we have the infrastructure? Are we on the way to having the infrastructure? Yeah, so here, here's the problem. Um, when, when I was uh, an MLA, one of the things we were trying to push was a climate plan. And as part of that, obviously, with 40% of our emissions in BC coming from transportation, we needed to actually get to zero emitting vehicles. But in order to do that, you have to get people over the fear of range anxiety. I, I would argue that in many cases, it's not real. It, it's a real fear, but it's really not grounded if, if, uh, in you know, evidence. So, for example, if you commute around Vancouver, there, there's tons. There's no problem in Vancouver, Victoria. I, I went up to uh, Parksville um, just yesterday, and uh, there's one in Duncan. But the, the, the key thing is for the long-distance travel is the, is the fast chargers, and that's, that's what people are really looking for, the D.C. fast chargers. Now, the problem with 
uh, that has existed for un- until very recently. Uh, this was something that actually um, worked on in the legislature was that you were not able to charge for electricity unless you were a registered utility. So you can imagine that uh, nobody wanted to put in a fast charger because if they did, they'd have to give the electricity away for free unless they were BC Hydro. But that regulation now allows you to do it and there's fixed rates done through BCUC and you're starting to see them roll out. And as more and more people drive, the network is going to be pretty impressive. So anyone can go to a, there's an app called PlugShare and on PlugShare, you'll see the network of fast chargers. And your, your caller is absolutely right. You get up uh, to Williams Lake, uh, no problem, via 70-mile house and 100-mile house. But uh, there's other roads off the main, that main highway that you're not going to get anywhere. And that's what we need to fix. And it, it'll just take time as mm-hmm. more and more people adopt. So you mentioned the charging issue. I had a lot of questions about this, too, from people. Is So do we charge people? Like, do you have to pay to charge when you stop at one of these? Yes. Uh, now you do. And that, that was one of the, the things. It, was, it needed a regulation, regulatory change uh, because uh, you could only charge for electricity if you were a you know, utility. So things like Flow, and, uh, which is one it's a slow charging network, or, or Green Lots, which is a fast charging network, which BC Hydro parts, part, uh, part with, couldn't really do it, put it in and then charge you. They just have to give you the power for free. And so, you know, there were some nice businesses that did it, and like Real Canadian Superstore, for example, in Nanaimo had one that used to be free. And now it's charged because they can't uh, they, they can charge. That was a hydro network. So, so they are coming, and, and I, there are very few that are free now. There's a few, there's one company, it's called, they, they, they make them, and people, uh, it's called Sun Country. You, if you go to, mm-hmm. um, you know, pubs and stuff, sometimes they have it, uh, a, a charge station that they're willing to pay a customer to use. Right. Uh, it's do you, insignificant. Do you, do you think that changes things then, Andrew? So when you've got companies saying now, okay, now we can make money getting people to charge their car, it's like gas stations. You're going to see more and more of them. In fact, uh, the uh, a Shell has got fast chargers in them as well. So, so there are partnerships between Green Lots, which is a U.S.-based fast charging company, and, and Shell, which is a, uh, uh, a gas a gas fire. They're seeing the end of, of 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 gasoline, and so absolutely. Again, it, it it's if you're on the island, it depends where you are too. Like it's a uh, the uptake obviously in Williams Lake is not going to be the same as the uptake in. Metro Vancouver. So it's it's just going to take time to roll out. And the good thing is, there's a lot of people like me and a lot of people I know who are what do we call we call early adopters. So we're willing to take the you know to to, to kind of go a little bit further to make it work for us until such and and start to you know create the demand that others we are able to benefit from in the future. And you know I've had an EV for, for six or seven years now, and right. it's uh, it's for, compared to what it used to be like. It's a piece of cake driving around right, uh, right but now. But you mentioned range anxiety. That is that still a uh, thing? Do you think? Uh, it's well. Look, I have I have two. We have a, we have ones called. I, I don't want to advertise vehicles, but we we wanted one for long distance. So we have a Hyundai Kona, which is rated at about four hundred and fifteen kilometers. But we, but in you know in this weather in the summer, we're getting over well over five hundred five hundred fifty kilo uh, range on a charge. There's no anxiety there. My Nissan Leaf, which is a much older Leaf, has about a hundred and fifty kilometer range. So. I wouldn't want to drive my Leaf to Williams Lake. I would have no problem driving my Kona to Williams Lake because 500 kilometers 
is an awful long way, and uh, there's tons of chargers uh, on the way there. Okay, and how long does it take? So on a road trip, like how much more time do you have to factor in because you're going to stop along the way and you need a charge? Well, this is, so I went from Victoria to Parksville. So I, I can't make it on, on, on one charge. I have to stop. And the place to stop is, is Duncan because you go up in the, uh, the highway. So I pull into Duncan and it's 15 minutes to go from about uh, 35% to about 80%. So 15 minutes, uh, that's basically enough time to get out, grab a coffee, go to the washroom and get back in the car. So again, the fast chargers are—they are very fast. It's longer on the on the on the on the on the bigger cars, of course. So the, the, right. I mean the bigger batteries. But but for 15 minutes is is not a big deal. They they the the thing that again one of the big problems uh, and those who have been driving EVs for a long time will tell you, is that people who are new owners often don't know things uh, things that they shouldn't do. For example, you should never use a fast charger to charge it to a hundred percent, because it not only does it hurt your battery. But it, it basically, because they, they, they can't charge at full capacity once they get around 85%, 80 to 85%, they switch to just being a regular charger. So there are people who, who, who spend too long in fast chargers, ruining their battery and also hmm. not using them for what they're designed to. They're designed to get you up fast, but not 100%. Those are what you use, those, uh, uh, you know, the The regular volt. chargers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you think uh, this is yeah. going to cease being an issue then in, in a few years? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's... Uh, for me, com- like again, I'm somebody who's been driving since uh, six seventy five. Uh, well, since I have twenty fifteen uh, Leaf. Um, uh, for me, it's just not even an issue I, uh, compared to what it was. So I think that the next, you know, within two or three years, it'll be rolling out. And BC Hydro, I mean, they have put so many fast chargers on the highways now, and it's 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 impressive. So give it time, and uh, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and again, if you're if you're if if you're driving around Vancouver, you, you don't really need to ever no. use a fast charger. Exactly, and, and so and you shouldn't because they're a little harder on the battery. And the other thing is that, um, especially with EV chargers, is that you know if you're a person who who lives in Vancouver and you go to the grocery store and you see that one parking lot there that ha- is for EV, don't use it if you don't need to. It's it's kind of courtesy is that sure you can plug it in and just because you get a parking spot, but it's right. actually irritating to those who actually need the you know, Andrew, I feel like that's a whole other topic with EV etiquette, yeah. but we're all out of time. Yeah. So thank you so yeah, much yeah, yeah. for joining us this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Simi. Nice to talk to you again. Appreciate it. That's Andrew Weaver, former BC Green Party leader, climate scientist, professor in School Earth and Ocean Sciences at UVic, talking about uh, the infrastructure for electric vehicles. Oh, EV etiquette. I've got a lot of emails about that too. So if you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. While that wildfire smoke has moved into our region here in the lower mainland, you can see it out there this morning. It's a bit hazy. Could be worse is what I keep saying to myself, right? When I see the pictures of what things look like in the interior and the Okanagan, and I think at this point we're lucky. But keep this stuff around long term and you definitely start to feel it. So how does this impact our health long term? Well, joining us now for more on that is Michael Brower, who's a professor at the UBC School of Population and Public Health. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. So this is an issue I feel like we have to deal with more and more of these years, right? All of a sudden in the last three or four years, we see wildfire smoke every summer. Yeah, unfortunately, that is the case. And it looks like uh, this is going to only get worse into future years. We're expecting 
longer fire seasons with more fires and, and more severe fires as, as we move into the future. What does this do to us then, Michael? Like breathing this stuff in, even if it's a little bit hazy like today, what does that do to us? So for most people um, who are otherwise healthy, this is really should just be transient. Uh, you may experience some symptoms, but they'll, they'll go away when the smoke goes away. Our, our main concern is really people that have uh, chronic diseases already, chronic heart disease, chronic lung disease, uh, especially, and it makes those diseases worse. And, and that can be really severe uh, worsening to the, to the extent that when we look back at the data, we, we definitely see more deaths uh, during periods of smoke like this. So what can we do to mitigate it, if anything? Um, there's a bunch of things that, that people can do. We're, we're really past the point where, um, you know, suppressing these fires more effectively is going to make them go away. That, that can certainly improve the situation, more forest management. But we need to be thinking about how we can, we can actually live together with the smoke uh, in a way that minimizes the impact somehow. So that, that means things like air filters, air cleaners in our indoor spaces, um, wearing masks. Um, the, the sort of cloth surgical masks don't help that much, but they do provide a little bit of protection. Um, wearing kind of an N95 uh, respirator type mask, that really does work quite well. Adjusting activities um, and meaning, you know, over the course of the day so that we're reducing our physical activity, but also sort of over the course of the year. I think we're, we're at a point where we may want to start thinking about when do we take our vacations? Uh, when do we have, you know, large outdoor events, uh, outdoor sporting events, and doing that more in the spring, um, late spring, sort of early fall, while we get away from this fire season? Right. So essentially what you're saying then, Michael, is that we can't just ignore this anymore by saying, oh, well, it's just a few days. No, um, you know, we're, we don't know exactly what sort of, a, you know, a few days in terms means in terms of long-term health from, from fire smoke, but we know from regular air pollution that these effects are cumulative. And, and over time, the more exposure you have this kind of pollution, um, basically it leads to a life shortening. So this, this is something that we do need to take seriously. All right. Well, more to come. Michael, thank you. Sure. That is Michael Brower, professor at the UBC School of Population and Public Health, talking about poor air quality and how it affects our long-term health. Like, we may not think that looking outside today, you go, well, it's a little bit hazy, could be worse. That's kind of what I was thinking, too. But you know what? I don't remember having this problem with wildfire smoke, you know, when I was a kid growing up here in the Lower Mainland. But over the last four to five years, this has become almost the norm that we expect in the summer. Well, at what point is the wildfire smoke going to show up, right? And that has an impact on people, especially those who have respiratory issues. How has it been impacting you? Let me know, simi at cknw.com. All right, on a happier note, something to look forward to this week. Hey, we are on to the gold medal game for Team Canada and women's soccer. Uh, a bit nerve-wracking, I know. People are going to be thinking about getting up, or we're going to have to get up, actually. It's going to be in the evening for us to watch that game. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, people are still talking about the result of that soccer game, you know, Canada versus the United States. And now we are on to try for the gold medal. Good news is, hey, it's going to be at a watchable hour for us. Canada will play for gold 7 o'clock in the evening on Thursday, which means it'll be 11 a.m. Friday morning in Tokyo. We will play against Sweden. But boy, there was a lot going on in this game. So we thought, let's break it down a little bit and talk about where we're at. Like, what are our chances here for this gold medal? So joining us now is soccer analyst Colin Miller with the Whitecaps, of course, and talking all about soccer. Colin, good morning. 
Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Colin, did you stay up and watch the game or did you record the game? No, I actually stayed up uh, and watched the game with my daughter. Um, I was a bit numb, it has to be said, Simi, but uh, uh, a terrific, terrific result, a very famous result and performance for our girls. And, uh, and now we look forward to tomorrow night and, as you said, a far more sensible kickoff time. Yeah, what did you think about the... I know the Americans were very unhappy and the, the, the comments that I saw that bothered me was they were just upset because they had actually lost to Canada. Yeah, how nice is that? Right. Eh? It's, uh, it's fantastic. I just... Yeah, there's, a, there's an element of, of uh, how they go about their, their, their work with the, when it comes to football. Same thing with the men. Uh, there's a, almost a sense of entitlement. You know, they have been market leaders for a long, long time, uh, time semi, so... Uh, it, it's a little bit understandable that little bit of arrogance or a lot of arrogance that they have but uh, the girls this has been you know this Canadian team I think they epitomise what we what we believe as Canadians where um, you know there's a there's a difficulty in breaking this team down the, the goalkeeper Steph Labby has been been terrific all, all uh, tournament long but the defensive organisation that the girls for the most part have been sound uh, and there just was something in the air the other night that uh, that said, "Yeah, this is this is not going to be the U.S.'s night. This is going to be our night." And it, it, I'm delighted. And you know, Jessie Fleming for me has been. She almost seems to have been around for for years and years now because she started her international career at such an early age. But uh, she is becoming a fan's favourite because she's such a good footballer. Uh, but I'm delighted for Beth Priestman, the yes. staff, and, and and these girls. It's been terrific. Yeah, let's talk about you know the, the the makeup of the team here, Colin, because they certainly range in age, right? You've got some very yeah. young people on there, and then you've got people like veterans like Christine Sinclair, who clearly provide a lot of leadership. It, it, does that help them in this case? Because I know the U.S. One of their criticisms is their their team has perhaps aged out of their contention. Now they need to rebuild. Yeah, I mean the fact that uh, Megan Rapinoe came off the bench so late in the game and. You know, she actually made a positive impact. I, um, I was very surprised that she didn't start the game for the U.S. But with our girls, you know, I, I was very, very fortunate, uh, Simi, to work with uh, the girls when they went to uh, London Olympics. I worked uh, with John Herdman for about six or seven months here in Vancouver with the girls. So I, I, there's a number of these young ladies that I've had the privilege to work with. And you know, you're right. There's Christine Sinclair. There's Desi Scott as well. Uh, Steph Labby has been around for a while now, as well as Sophie Smith, of course, a girl that I'm very familiar with here in Abbotsford. She came through our program. But there, there's that mixture. I think when I was doing the research to come on this morning, there's actually eight girls who made their Olympic debut. So that tells you something about the future of the program as well. But you mentioned Christine Sinclair. Her her leadership, you know, and you get to see it when you work with the girls a little bit. She's not a, a loud, aggressive type of captain. She's very much a lead-by-example uh, type of person and player. So she, I can imagine the positive influence. I know the positive influence that she will have had on the girls. It would be interesting to see what Christine wants to do after her playing career, uh, whether she wants to get into the coaching side of things because... I think with her temperament, Simi, I think she would be a wonderful coach. Oh, you know what? I think you're absolutely right on that. Given how many players have said how inspirational she is to them, right, during their playing yes. career, I think you're absolutely right on that. Uh, Colin, what do they need to do? We, we Obviously, we'd love to see them win gold right yes. on Thursday. What do you think they need to do here? Well, for 
sure. I mean, the one thing about Sweden, and I, and I went to Sweden with John Herman when he had the, the women's team a number of years ago, and one thing that's clearly evident, and it's the same with the Swedish men's national team, Simi, they are all traditionally uh, very hard to break down, very well organized, uh, fit, uh, very athletic, technically very good. You know, they can pass the ball well. So this, I think, will be a very tight final, Simi. So the opportunities that Canada create, and it's going to sound simple and very basic, but they're going to have to take the opportunities they have. You know, Sweden have done well, very, very well to get through to the final as well. And, um, you know, they beat Australia, I believe, in the semi-final. So they, they, they've, they've earned the right to, to get there, and they will be just as, as motivated to get the, the gold medal here. But Canada just, they don't need to change anything that's had, had them uh, get to this stage. It's allowed them to get to this stage. I mean, they're, they're going to have to continue the discipline, be very well organized, and, of course, take their chances when they get it. But it will, it will be a very tight final, and that's just the way Sweden play. Okay, but Colin, what is your prediction? Yeah, I'm going for Canada. I think the, the momentum's with the girls and with us, and uh, they've done ever so well. There's no way that you can, uh, you can beat the U.S. and then not get the gold medal. You have to do the business here. And, you know, very interesting here, the, the girls to a player have said they left, you know, Canada's uh, shores here to get a different colour of medal. And I can assure you, knowing a lot of these senior players that are in this group, they will be wanting to come back with a gold medal. And what a famous night that would be. Oh, boy. It's almost too much to hope for on Thursday. But we'll be watching, too, Colin. Listen, thank you so much. Yes, my pleasure, Simi. Have a great day. You, too. That's Colin Miller, Vancouver Whitecaps soccer analyst, talking about the big game. It is Thursday. It is 7 o'clock, so you don't have to stay up the way Colin and his daughter did to watch that last game. Uh, It's going to be a big one. Canada playing for gold against Sweden. He's right. The team definitely wants a different color medal than the bronze medal, which they have won a couple of times. Well, they're definitely going to get a different color, but the one they're hoping for is gold. Will you be watching? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Van Dusen Garden is one of the places in Vancouver where, despite all the COVID restrictions, actually saw a boom in new visitors during the pandemic. Our Roger Silhal is back with us now because she was there recently. She learned some tips from their gardening team. And honestly, Raji, is there anybody better to learn from? Oh, there's no one better to learn from. And also, I am a novice. <laughs> I'm just very <laughs> new at gardening so- I mean, I will take any and all tips. I know you do a little bit of gardening. Um, You know, but any success that I have at gardening is a very recent um, development because um, even my husband would look at something that I've grown in the last year or so. And he actually said to me at one point, wow, you know what? It survived. You're actually getting better at this. Because for 20, 25 years, I've tried to grow things and I just did not have a green thumb. But I think now that I've got more time, and your kids are little, but now that I've got more time, I can put the effort into it, and I'm getting results. That's fabulous. Well, a lot of our listeners are gardeners. A huge amount of our listeners are. And I got into some gardening talk with Van Dusen subforeman Andrew Fleming. Here's our chat. I've seen some breeds of flowers here I've never seen before, including a Himalayan blue poppy. So when it comes to those rare breeds, how do you guys decide what gets planted? The gardener does some research and wants to introduce a specific plant into the collection that they're responsible for. Sometimes our our curator will take on bigger renovations within the garden if we're looking to introduce a collection. For example, we are 
uh, expanding our hydrangea collection this fall. Uh, we'll be planting it this fall and into the spring. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot more uh, hydrangeas, different cultivars and uh, varieties that are available these days. So yeah. what is the next flower that you are pumped on and why? It's kind of a New Zealand-Australia section as well as a South African garden. And I noticed the Crocosmia. There is a red variety there and a yellow one that are just, they're, they're such hummingbird attractants. It's a really nice part of the garden right now. As well as there's some um, agapanthus and some galtonia. Galtonia is a gi- giant summer hyacinth. There's a nice mix of kind of red, white, and blue blooms there that seem to be a real hotspot for photographers and visitors alike. Um, for not just the flowers, but also the birds. With the presence of these other birds comes larger birds of prey. Um, we have a few resident coyotes here as well. We like to think that they're some of the luckier coyotes in the system to be uh, to call Van Dusen their home. They're pretty much left alone. You don't really <laughs> see them during the daytime, but but they're around. It can be very surprising how much how many bird sounds that you hear, really at any time of the day. What kinds of plants can people grow in their own gardens that grow well in BC? Something that requires minimal care. Things like lavender, other succulents like uh, Echeveria, Aeoniums, different agaves, Artemisia, which is wormwood. There's a uh, Beard tongue, some beard tongues anyway, some penstemons are very drought tolerant and they have a beautiful uh, flower on them. Different sage, Russian sage, uh, yarrow. What's the most beautiful to your mind, the most impactful flower that'll really make someone's garden pop? Hydrangeas are are really a favorite. There's so many deep blues and purple uh, varieties, lots of different pinks, flowers with kind of multicolored flowers, I suppose, different leaf shape, different stem color. So hydrangea is... I guess as a genus is one that you can pretty well find one that, you know, everyone will find one that they like for, for one reason or another. Uh, the roses are always extremely popular here with fragrance and color. We have a nice collection of both hybrid tea in our formal area and some cottage style shrub roses as well. It's different for everyone. And I, I, I struggle to ever pick favorites myself personally, <laughs> but um, a big uh, draw to a flower is fragrance. And not just not just fragrance, but also kind of when it's fragrant or why mm. why the flower is fragrant. A lot of the white blooms that we have in the garden are pollinated by moths, so naturally they they tend to smell more at night. So there we have a few nicotianas uh, that have a nice big white bloom on them, and in, in the day you might not even notice, but at night they're quite fragrant. You know, I feel so soothed and relaxed after listening to that, Raj. <laughs> Simi, it was incredible. So I spent an hour and a half there, but I could have spent many more hours. And they say on average, uh, people do spend about one hour in the 55 acres at Van Dusen. You know, in their vegetable garden, when I was looking at it, the wind changed direction and I got a whiff of a flower that I'd never smelled before. And it became like this treasure hunt to find out what it was, what direction it was was in. Everything just smelled incredible. It was something white. I mean, there's a bunch of apps now. This is, this is the extent of my gardening prowess, right? I'm like, it was something Something white, white. a white flower. Um, They just had so many beautiful flowers in bloom, but the smells and the sounds were really what did it for me. And I, I was telling you earlier in the show that, um, kind of my mid-year resolution is to just seek beauty, pursue beauty, whatever, in whatever form that is. If that's like a walk in my neighborhood and just like taking in the smells at night in my neighborhood or visiting a flower garden or, you know, dancing when I'm home alone for the brief one minute of my daily life that that ever happens. <laughs> 
But let me ask you this. Take these moments. When you walk in the neighborhood, and I do this all the time too. When I walk in the neighborhood and there's a home with particularly beautiful flowers, whether it's a gorgeous climbing rose bush or maybe they went out of their way and planted, you know, a lot of flowers that are perfectly in bloom right now. I have the temptation, I don't know if you do, to knock on the door and say thank you sometimes, to <laughs> just say thank you for allowing me to enjoy how, I know it's a lot of hard work, and I just wanted to tell you it's beautiful. Oh, that's so nice. I will tell someone if they're outside of their house. Um, and often, Simi, I've been caught admiring someone's flowers for too long that I start to see them yes. appear in their windows yes. looking <laughs> out at me like, uh, is she trying to lop some of those flowers? Um, so oh, some, one lady offered it to me. I was admiring her red tulips one spring, not last, would have been last spring, maybe the spring before. And I just said to her, I love, like, tul- I love tulips. And I said to her, Oh, I'm just admiring your tulips. Sorry about that. She was like, No, no. She goes, Why don't, let me just go get some scissors. She goes, You take some oh with my. you. I was like, I cannot take your flowers because then somebody else won't gorgeous. be able to admire them. Oh, that's gorgeous. Yeah. In my neighborhood, a lot of people leave out bags of herbs uh, saying, oh. Help yourself to them. But um, if people would do that with flowers, oh my goodness, I would. Uh- <laughs> It would take more than my fair share, probably. <laughs> well, it was lovely. Thank you, Raji. Thanks, Simi. That's Raji Sohalder, trip to Van Dues. And of course, appreciate some flowers today. They are gorgeous. And you know what? Not always easy to grow either. This is Mornings with Simi. Two years ago, you might not have known who BC's health officer was. Today, Dr. Bonnie Henry is a household name in this province, and she's pretty well known right across the country, too. That's because of COVID-19 and a very challenging time in the job. Now, though, Dr. Henry is being recognized for that work with an order of BC, and she joins us now. Thank you for being here this morning. Well, thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Congratulations. So, so how did it feel when you found out that you thought, oh, um, all this and an order of BC? You know what? It, it was very, um, very touching and and humbling for me. And and you know, I really, it has been such a challenging eighteen months, and it's not over yet. And I really think that there's a whole team uh, that have worked together on this. And uh, I really, I, I'm the face maybe of a, of a large group of people that are still working very hard. And I just want to also say that, you know, I think it reflects what we've done here in BC together to get through this pandemic. Did you ever think, though, that you would be a household name? (laughs) No, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Most public, I don't think Dr. Perry Kendall ever had that issue, right? He did the job before you for many years. For many years. (laughs) And I'm very grateful. Perry's one of my mentors. And so... Well, congratulations. Uh, that's wonderful to see. But you just said it yourself, Dr. Henry, that this is not over yet. Is BC in the fourth wave? You know, it's hard to, to say. Um, uh, this whole concept of waves is something that I've uh, we've never sort of um, seen. It's hard to tell. But I will say, one of the things that we have that's different now that is working is immunization. And we really need uh, to everybody to step up and get vaccinated. And t- tomorrow's our, our walk-in Wednesday where all across the province, people don't need an appointment. Anybody 12 or over who's eligible can walk in and get your vaccine at a bunch of places all over the province. This is the time when we really need to push and get that last few percentage of people protected. And that's what's going to get us out of this next surge, this next um, increase in cases, whatever we want to call it. So you said next surge. So even though we're seeing an increase now, we've got this outbreak in the Okanagan. Do you feel there's more to come? 
Well, there's so much that we still don't know. But what we do know is that vaccines are working and that when people are immunized and protected with their two doses, um, that we're not going to see the, the widespread transmission that we saw in March and last fall. So it is really important right now that people get protected because as we go into the fall, we're also going to see other respiratory illnesses. It's likely we're going to see more COVID. We knew we would see increased cases when we started to come together again, but we can do it safely and we can stop that surge on hospitalizations by everybody getting immunized now. Do you think we'll need booster shots? I know this is a topic that is being much discussed in other jurisdictions. Yeah, and we're obviously watching that really, really closely. I think for most of us, we won't need booster shots this year, at least not in the in the near term. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is we're seeing really good, strong protection because we had a little bit of extra time between doses, and that makes a big difference. But there are some people who may need a booster shot, and we're watching that carefully. So people who have certain cancers or who are on immune-suppressive drugs, um, and there's some studies going on, and Canada's part of them, to, to determine whether a third dose can actually make a difference or whether it, it is even more important that all the rest of us are protected so that we stop the risk to people whose immune systems just don't respond very well to the vaccine. What is the number that you are comfortable with or, you know, you and your people are comfortable with in terms of how many of us need to be vaccinated? Well, the the one number I would be comfortable with is everybody, um, everybody who's eligible, because we know there's a portion of the population, children under the age of 12. And so this is where immunization against COVID-19 is a little bit different. It's not only to protect us and to get us, um, make sure that we can get back to doing the things that we want to do. But it protects those around us. It protects our community. It stops the virus from being transmitted. And that means all of us can get back to the things that we love. So it really is about um, about altruism as well as about protecting ourselves. Now, on September 7th, we are supposed to head into that last stage. With everything that's going on now, does anything change with that date? Not yet. Um, obviously, we'll continue to watch, and that's one of the reasons why we have had this this slower um, uh, um, period of time to make sure that we can get vaccinations up as high as possible and that we can watch what's happening, make sure that we're stopping uh, transmission in the, the clusters, the outbreaks we're seeing, and you know, the interior is a good example of that, where 97% of the people who are getting infected right now are people who are not immunized. And that's important. All of us need to, to pay attention to that. So we have time now. This is the time to get vaccinated so that as we get into the, the fall, we're all protected and we can um, take that next step forward. So what are you looking for when it comes to that outbreak in the Okanagan? Uh, do you feel that it is being addressed sufficiently? Like how long before making a decision on what does happen on September 7th? Yeah, they, these are decisions that we we reassess um, every day, um, but certainly every week. Uh, we expected that as we paid attention to who was getting sick, that numbers would go up. And so uh, over this past weekend, we've seen um, more people being detected, but we're also paying attention to it. And people, um, businesses are, are 
closing down so that their staff can be protected. And we need everybody who's in the Okanagan to recognize that this virus is circulating. So we have to take measures to protect it from getting into um, those who are more vulnerable, particularly in healthcare or people who are not able to be vaccinated. So you think when the numbers come out this afternoon, we're going to see another big bump? We're going to have a big bump over this weekend for sure. Um, But I know uh, people are working hard in the interior. Um, The community is coming together to stop the transmission, and that's what's going to make a difference. That and we have this really effective tool now, and that's immunization. And we're doing pop-up clinics and making sure that people have access to it. You know, we've heard from a lot of people about different reasons why they've not yet been immunized. And one of the big ones is it's just access. Um, It's not been convenient for people. So we're doing everything we can to to get it out there so you can make and get it uh, on your lunch break or on your way to work or um, all kinds of places. And, and tomorrow on our right, drop-in yes. Wednesday. <laughs> I was going to bring day. that up. Yeah. So what is happening tomorrow? So tomorrow is walk-in Wednesday. Uh, all clinics will be offering walk-in uh, vaccination for your first dose. Anybody over age 12 who's not yet got your first dose or for uh, your second dose if you're eligible and um, and it is Pfizer or Moderna um, and that both will be available in clinics all over the province. All right. Good, good incentive to get it done. Uh, Dr. Henry, once again, congratulations. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Dr. Bonnie Henry, Provincial Health Officer. She is receiving the Order of BC, but also they're talking about where we are at with COVID-19. It's not over by any stretch of the imagination. And she said it right there. You know what? The numbers are going to come out this afternoon. And yeah, there's going to be a big bump because of the weekend and what we have seen happening in the interior.